Are you an accredited investor looking for a new opportunity to generate passive income and build the retirement of your dreams? Then elevate your investment game with Viking Capital, where wealth meets wisdom. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, Viking Capital can help guide you towards financial freedom through passive real estate investing. With strong and transparent underwriting, Viking identifies low-risk opportunities with the goal of preserving investor capital and maximizing long-term growth potential. And their accessible and responsive investor relations team will help you understand how each investment will impact your unique financial goals. With $800 million in assets acquired, more than $230 million in equity raised, and more than 5,000 units under management, Viking Capital is your path to early retirement. To learn about Viking Capital's latest investment opportunity, which is available for you right now, visit go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best. That's go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best to get started today. Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, Promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Whoever is bringing the bulk of that equity should have the final say on control so that they can be truly responsible to the outcome of that project to their investors. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest, Neil Walgren. Neil is joining us from San Francisco, California. He is a partner at Mag Capital Partners, which focuses on single-tenant net lease development and sale leasebacks structured primarily in the industrial sector. They focus on lease structure and tenants more so than the real estate itself. Neil's portfolio consists of industrial triple net leases and short-term rentals and multifamily syndications. Neil has also served as a Navy and Air Force pilot flying C-130s. Neil, thank you for joining us and how are you today? Doing great, Ash. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Neil, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah, absolutely. So like you mentioned there, uh, California native, grew up in the suburbs of San Francisco and really just needed something a little more exciting in life. So I went to the Air Force Academy and ended up flying C-130s, both the active Air Force 
in the Navy Reserve for almost 11 years. Combat tours to Iraq and Afghanistan, lived in Japan for about five years in Tokyo, and got to spend my 20s the way <laughs> any 20-year-old should if they could get the opportunity. Well, thank you very much. World. Thank you for your service. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of through chance, I uh, had some friends, and you find when you're on a long overwater flight, and you have a lot of talk time with the, <laughs> the pilot sitting next to you, and started uh, meeting some guys, especially in the reserves, who were investing a little bit on their own, doing turnkey single family investments and a, a number of other ones and got started in a real estate game in that way, buying a couple of turnkey investment homes out in the Indianapolis area. And then ultimately got out of the flying world and hopped around a couple of startups and ended up eventually getting into a startup focused on raising private equity through accredited investors. And we would JV with commercial real estate partners for different projects. What asset classes? On that previous firm, we would partner with really sponsors who had deep expertise in narrow asset classes. So we had one partner who was a multi-tenant retail just in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, another multifamily operator who would just do B-class properties in Northeast Atlanta. So really kind of niche there. And through some relationships, we partnered with Mad Capital Partners, and their focus was, was really specific. Industrial triple net lease investments acquired through sale leaseback. What was your role at the startup before MAG? I started in operations and eventually was running the firm as president there. And how long has MAG been in triple net industrial properties? MAG was founded in 2015 by Dax Mitchell and Andrew G. Both of them have really about 20 plus years of commercial brokerage experience where they both started. So on the buy-sell side, and they've been doing industrial, I would say since about 2005, both direct acquisitions and acquiring through sale leaseback. Okay. So 2015, good time for industrial. Are there any plans to pivot? Industrial is still on fire, but there's going to come a day where it's not, potentially. Are they looking at other asset classes as well? We always do. At the end of the day, we're real estate investors first. We're, we're brokers. It. From our perspective, probably has at least three or four more good years ahead of it. But like all asset classes, they ebb and flow. And there's going to be a time when industrial is heavily overpriced and other asset classes make more sense from an opportunity standpoint. Today, do you look at any other asset classes? Do you look at retail, multifamily, mobile home parks? Yeah. So we do probably about 80% of our business is kind of our core product, industrial net lease investments. The remaining 20% are what I call opportunistic. And that ranges from, we do some developments, some value-add short-term rental type stuff. We have a JV partner. We do some larger multifamily stuff down in the Inland Empire in California. And these are ways that we kind of augment where when we see opportunity, our hands are not tied specifically around industrial, but we can be opportunistic when the right deals come along. Got it. And how big of a value-add play would you chase? Or is it mostly parking capital? We like reposition. So for instance, we bought a interesting project that was changing hands from an ownership standpoint in Moab, Utah. And that deal, it was a number of new build short-term rentals, kind of unique. It was really the only new build short-term rental property that has a short-term rental license. And the city put a moratorium on future licenses out there. So we saw a huge opportunity in this property. Not only does it have 
active units that are up and running right now, but it had a basically pre-permitted land that was pre-permitted for an additional up to 60 or 70 units. So we're actually going to expand on what's there and reposition it and look to sell in a couple of years. It's like having the only gold mine in town. <laughs> it kind of is. Yeah. Good. Most people are like Moab, Utah. <laughs> <laughs> what's your minimum deal size? These days, our primary investment vehicle is our funds. So most of our industrial deals fall under funds, which are between about 50 and 75 million in equity, levered up to about 200 million in real estate. On the individual deals, typically they will range an equity slice between about four and 15 million. Got it. So Neil, let's take multifamily syndicators today. A number of them are pivoting because of the increased competition, the compressed cap rates, they're going to mobile home parks, self-storage. How does a multifamily syndicator pivot into industrial? How do they learn? How do they partner with the right people? How do they raise capital for it? And how do they find lenders for that? Great question. I would say a lot of the variables to look at when potentially pivoting asset classes are the same ones, those same operators probably looked at when they first got into multifamily. Really, it's finding strategic partners, finding partners that know this space well, that you can do a JV with, do some sort of partnership with to kind of learn the ropes. Industrial is interesting. There's a lot less operational focus on the real estate and a lot more focus on both the strength of the lease and the quality of your tenant. So almost all of these properties have a single tenant and long-term, typically 15, 20-year absolute triple net leases. So those two become the primary focus as opposed to doing capital improvements and managing occupancy and vacancy rates that are more prevalent in the multifamily world. And you don't need a leasing agent and you don't need a maintenance person and a property manager. <laughs> All self-managed. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me. Like the first time you go on a triple net deal and realize a hundred percent of your expenses are taken care of directly by your tenant. It's completely refreshing new way to look at what real estate can look like. Yeah. Funny story. My very first property a dozen years ago was a mixed use building. A store had kind of a net lease. College kids were destroying my apartments above. <laughs> I, I saw the store owner replacing all the HVAC units in my building on their dime. I, I, <laughs> right? I kind of freaked out. I, I didn't know how much this was going to cost me. So I go downstairs and I asked the store, I'm like, Hey, what's going on? He's like, yeah, our AC went out. So I just replaced the entire HVAC unit. And I'm like, damn, all right. And as I'm leaving, he asks me if he can remodel the bathroom. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, here I am unclogging a tenant's toilet upstairs. And yeah, so that I learned that early on. Commercial yep. tenants improve your space. Neil, you talked about single tenants. Now, how do you qualify that single tenant? Do you make sure that they have multiple locations? Do you look at their financials? How long have they been in business? Is it a mom and pop operator? Great questions there. That single tenant, that variable is frightening to some folks because your vacancy and occupancy become more binary. You're either fully leased or 0% leased. However, most of these inbound when you're buying the properties typically will have a tenant in place. And now you have an opportunity really to vet out and understand the strength of what we call tenant credit. So that that can range a huge amount of specialties will focus on that. You have publicly traded tenants. You're going to be your Amazons and your Ford or whatever. Those are going to have very public evaluation on what that credit looks like. 
and you have a pretty objective view on what your confidence is that your tenant like that will pay rent. Conversely, you have private credit tenants, and those are typically what we work with. So on those, we actually have a full underwriting credit team in-house. We will work typically two to three months with that tenant. We look at historical financial statements, P&Ls, balance sheets. We look at coverage ratios and their ability to cover their both fixed costs and operational costs. We also look at what kind of debt load does that company have? Are they highly leveraged? Is that interest rate environment that's increasing is going to impact their ability to stay in business? Or do they have really low debt where they could probably weather a financial recession or storm and still come out on the other side? So from a scope standpoint, you mentioned, are they mom and pop or not? On our last fund, 75 or 80% of our tenants did over $100 million a year in revenue. So these are not mom and pop shops for the most part. Most of them have been around 50, 60, 70 years or more and employ a decent amount of people and have that operational history. Will the private tenants open up their books to you? They have to. Really, we would be taking on an unknown amount of risk if we weren't able to see what their financials look like. So sometimes we get them sanitized or a summary level because they want to keep some of that industry corporate advantage. We understand that. But ultimately, we need to make sure that they frankly, have the revenue and consistency and EBITDA that we know that they can comfortably cover their rent obligation. And I'm assuming you currently buy to hold long-term or do you dispose of assets as well? Yeah. Like any industry, you're going to have a, a little bit of a mix of both. In general, we have stabilized assets where the way I consider that you have a super strong tenant, they're in place. Your lease is typically 15, 20 years in term. And on those, I might hold five, six, seven years, and that's going to allow me to produce good yield. There's rent bumps built into the lease. So every year, I know with a high degree of certainty, my cash flow is increasing. And then when I go to sell, I've still got maybe 13, 15 years left to term on that lease. There's a lot of buyers still interested in that. So when the next buyer buys the building, they assume that lease and they assume the remaining term on there. So conversely, we're able to add value sometimes. Sometimes we'll buy a property with sometimes multiple leases and we're able to consolidate them under a single triple net lease. When we do that, that's really our industry's equivalent of a value add. So at that point, we produced a decent lift in terms of the final value of that property. And we might hold that for a shorter amount of time to try to capture that value quicker. Now, historically, having those 15, 20 year leases has been very beneficial because the next buyer has that security that they're buying. Today, with prices going up, inflation. What are your thoughts on that? We now look for properties that have expiring leases more so than multiple lease renewals because the rents haven't been raised. They're not in line with the current market rents. So isn't it a detriment to have such a long-term lease with renewals built in? Great question. Several factors to look at, right? The first is what are those renewals? Are those renewals keeping up with inflation? Are they keeping up with historic inflation? Most of these are long-term plays. Historically, we would look for 2% annual bumps. Now we're closer to about 25 or 3% based on some of the above average inflation we're seeing. However, something important to look at is even if we're, say, losing out to inflation from a rent perspective, we are insulated from corresponding increases in expenses. So on a triple net lease, if my insurance goes up, If my building maintenance costs go up, which they do, right? If my property taxes go up, all those things will continue to rise, but those are paid directly by my tenant. 
So I'm protected from the inflationary effects of my expenses, but only benefit from the rent bumps built into my, my revenue. So it's a much more predictable model that, frankly, that rent more directly correlates to NOI compared to rent minus expenses in a more traditional investment type. Thank you for that. So the only variable that you really contend with is your debt structure. What kind of debt goes on these properties typically? We're typically putting in fixed rate debt. So ultimately, that gives us a cash flow yield spread that effectively is the difference between rent and our fixed rate debt. So we lock in those variables. So now we can hold that property long-term and we know with a high degree of certainty what I'm going to be able to distribute out to our LPs. Ultimately, our debt is going to be fixed rate for five to seven years, typically a 10-year term in today's environment. Obviously, everything shifts and moves pretty regularly, but we're seeing five to 6% interest rates in that type of debt. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you a real estate investor looking to break into the multifamily investing space? Have you heard of MFIN Con happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 12th through the 14th? The Multifamily Investor Nation Convention is a place to learn from over 60 high-level apartment investors while networking with more than 700 additional investors. If that's not enough for you, A-Rod, yep, Alex Rodriguez, 12-time Major League Baseball All-Star with over $700 million of commercial real estate assets, will be live and in person speaking at the event. Also speaking is the one and only Dr. Robert Cialdini, the godfather of influence and the award-winning author. I personally love his books. So be sure to secure your tickets to this live in-person event before they're gone. Go to MFINCON.com for more details. Sponsorship opportunities are also available. Visit MFINCON.com today. Use the promo code BESTEVER to get $200 off your tickets. That's MFINCON.com. In terms of investors, what types of returns can they expect on these types of investments? Good question. Two factors. One is that yield you're going to get every year during the hold period from that rent. That yield cash on cash is going to look typically between about seven and nine percent. And that's going to escalate every year as the rent bumps kick in. And then on the back side, you're going to have a profit participation, usually selling around years four or five, six, somewhere in there. So all in historically, we typically project about a 15, 16% IRR. And we've been able to deliver closer to a 20 historically, but all things considered, the last couple of years have been good. In regards to location, what's the most important? Is it still last mile delivery? Is it near interstates, near a workforce, near an airport? Yeah, it's really your location is important, but in, in a different way. We don't really care about traffic count. I don't care how good the schools are. Frankly, I don't even care if there's crime in the area. That's where industrial is, right? They're going to be not the nicest part of town. They're not going to be in areas you probably want to live, but instead they're going to be areas with good basis on the land. More important, good access to a labor force. So typically they're going to be in secondary or tertiary cities or what I call commutable primary cities where they'll be far enough out where they can still get that labor force required for the operations for that company. How important is proximity to interstates? I would say decent. Most of these tenants are manufacturers. They're making products. They're either going to get those typically nationwide to their customers through primarily trucking, sometimes rail, sometimes a combination of the two. But I would say almost always you're going to want a decent highway access for the outbound and inbound pieces of those businesses. Now, when you get into 50, 100,000, couple hundred thousand square foot, is that still manufacturing or is that more distribution logistics? 
So most of our properties do a combination of them. So our average building size that we're buying is typically one to 200,000 square feet. And that's going to have some shipping and receiving. That's going to have typically some storage in there. The majority of it's going to be manufacturing. Typically 10 to 20% will be kind of office admin area. And then those buildings, it's really interesting. They're typically on an abundance of land because they are more secondary tertiary. So sometimes you'll see a primary building that was built maybe 40 years ago, and then they needed more space, added another one, and then another one. So you get these kind of patchwork quilt looking properties. But at the end of the day, you still have a single tenant leasing them all out. And then really they've configured that property in a way that works for them. So in that fashion, we're able to have, I hate the term sticky tenant, but it kind of is. You have a tenant who's really gotten comfortable with that space, built their operations around it, and frankly, looking for that same long-term relationship we are as landlords. How hard is it to find a 200,000 square foot industrial tenant? (laughs) To lease up a new one? It depends, right? I would say the more, a lot has to do with the configuration of your building. If your building is has wide open spaces, high ceilings, some shipping and receiving and high bay truck doors, you can fit almost any sort of manufacturing operation in there. So you're going to have a pretty easy, typically six to 12 month leasing period, but you should be able to get someone in fairly confidently. The more special use your building is, like any other asset class, high-end pharmaceutical buildings. For example, we looked at a Carvana building once. You've seen those. It looks like a... Yeah. a vehicular vending machine. And we're like, what if we lost this tenant? What would we do with this? You know, it's just like, I don't know. So those are examples of how you can mitigate that releasing risk should the need ever occur. I still feel better about having multiple tenants. Why go single tenant when you can have some diversity? Well, we got that feedback and we've since transitioned our industrial into a diversified fund. So our first fund had approximately 15 Diverse independent properties with 15 different tenants, each with a different credit profile. Almost all the tenants were in independent different industries. So a huge amount of diversification across that side to give it more of a multi-tenant risk structure that maybe a multifamily investor is more used to. Got it. Now let's think about some of the smaller investors, maybe some of our best ever listeners that want to pivot into industrial. They're looking at maybe a flex space warehouse that's 10 to 50,000 square feet, what should they look for? That's a great question. When you start getting into flux industrial, you're going to look at a lot more of the same factors as say a multi-tenant retail bill. You're going to look at TIs. You might have either a double net or maybe a limited triple net lease, but you're typically as the owner going to be responsible for the exterior and outside areas on that building. And you're going to have some occupancy. In my last firm, we bought a large industrial park in Houston that had 114 different tenants. I mean, it was massive. So we had two full-time property managers. And on those, it was much more of a, you know, really the same mindset as buying a multi-tenant retail space. So for a newer investor, you can have large industrial space or something small that might have two or three properties. Just bear in mind, those smaller buildings are usually going to have more smaller credit tenants. You're going to have mom and pop tenants that have weaker credit. And one thing that they can do to reinforce the security on those, especially in this model, is to ask for personal guarantees from the owner of those companies. That's a way to provide some backing or ask for a larger security deposit going in to say, hey, instead of the usual one month, your credit's kind of small. You guys only do maybe a mill or two of a year in revenue. 
So I might ask for six or 12 months of security deposit to kind of de-risk some of that risk that comes from having a smaller tenant there. Neil, do you do a lot of sale leasebacks? We do, yeah. Probably about 70%. Interesting. Can you explain the benefits of that and exactly what it is to our best ever listeners? Yeah. So the fundamental core of a sale leaseback is rather than buy a stabilized property on the market, where you are buying the property and assuming the in-place lease with the in-place tenant. The lease back is where you are buying the property from an owner occupant. So usually what happens is you have a manufacturing company that owns the warehouse they operate it out. They're looking for an alternate source of capital, typically to grow their business or pay down debt. So they will look to potentially source that capital from the sale of that building and the simultaneous lease back. And so we will execute both a purchase agreement and then also a lease agreement simultaneously in those operations. And it's a great point. It's very important to discern this. So oftentimes business owners will sell their property, lease it back, like you said, because they need the capital for something, or a lot of times they are positioning their company for a sale. They want to reduce Mm -hmm. debt, offload the real estate. How do you discern if they truly need the capital or if they're doing a pump and dump? If they signed a a brand new 10-year lease, maybe a five-year lease, just so they can get that high dollar amount and at the end of five years, not renew and good luck. Yeah. And that is the charter of our credit guys. So they come in and they need to understand the why behind it. And a lot of these guys, typically a lot of our sellers will have private equity backers. Usually there's some background activity going on there with a private equity roll-up acquisition Often those groups are much more interested in growing the operating company, less interested in being real estate owners. So we will look at both the terms of the sale and leaseback, and we'll look at where's this money going, like you said. So I would say nine times out of 10, that money is going to pay down debt, long-term debt revolver that's coming due. And that's a way for them to deleverage debt that stays on their balance sheet. Now on their balance sheet, they've significantly reduced their amount of corporate debt and in return, taken on a more conventional rental obligation through that long-term lease, which frankly makes their balance sheet more healthy and attractive for sourcing other types of business activities. You sound like you've been in this industry for 20 years. It's only been <laughs> seven, right? Eight, seven, eight? Good yeah. for you, man. You're a wealth it's of knowledge. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome. Well, Neil, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Ultimately, partner, partner, partner. I think 1,000% every time I've had a major stage of growth in my personal development and people close to me, it's when you find the right team to partner up with, especially in this industry, going it alone is near impossible. You have to have a diversified crew. I pulled a lot of that from my piloting experience in the Air Force. I had a multi-crew aircraft each man or woman on the plane there had their own unique specialty. And we just, frankly, we couldn't operate without having that right set of experts. So I, I think a lot of that carries over to the real estate space. When you're looking at partnering, do you specifically look at filling voids or is it just personality? Man, this person's fun. I can get along <laughs> with him or her. <laughs> it's easy to find drinking buddies. Hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to find someone who finds that void. But to your point, I think the void is more important. And frankly, to turn that around, to go, how can you condition yourself to fill someone else's missing piece there? Find out what industry you want to go into. Take industrial, right? We have 
acquisition side, we have lending side, we have capital raising, we have credit, we have admin and finance. All those are different, unique skill sets. And find out if you're looking to, to join that industry, find which sounds most enticing to you and become the best expert you can on it. And then as you're seeking to find a team to join or even do it yourself, now you have a deep expertise that you can continue to develop. Can you share a difficult lesson that you've learned with partnerships? Oh, wow. My experience is partnerships are phenomenal. However, control should follow equity. And ultimately, at the end of the day, investors in a deal are the most important stakeholders. And whoever is bringing the bulk of that equity should have the final say on control so that they can be truly responsible to the outcome of that project to their investors. And that's a policy we took on and MAG years ago, and it's really helped us. And it's allowed us to look our investors in the eye and go, hey, not only am I going to be a good steward of your capital here, but I'm going to only use it in projects that I know that I can make the right decisions for your capital here. Very well said. And thank you for sharing that. Neil, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? <laughs> Let's do it. All right, Neil, what's the best ever book you recently read? Recently, Tools of Titans. Tim Ferriss. I'm a little late to the party on that one. It came out a couple of years ago, but I eat it up. I mean, people are fascinating. I'll give you a quick tidbit, 10 seconds. Yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's talking about you expect movies and governors and weightlifting, but he's passionate about chess. He does daily chess. He meditates. All this kind of wild stuff that I wouldn't have expected from Schwarzenegger there. And each story in there is bite-sized, typically a couple pages, and you just get these amazing little nuggets of wisdom from some accomplished people. Yeah, Tim Ferriss, the human guinea pig. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> gotta respect it. Yeah, all his books are incredible. Neil, what's the best ever way you like to give back? Personally, on a professional sense, I was thinking about this, and I love raising money. I love having relationships with my investors, and it's a personal passion. It's something I do with just a, a high degree of conviction. And we try to give back through, frankly, bringing investors together, not just to sell a deal, but bringing investors together to introduce them to each other and form communities. And we know it can like throw a dinner, but we try to do fun stuff. We do go deep sea fishing. We've taken our investors to wine country and we go on property tours, we just find ways to really forge relationships beyond just a singular channel where it started. And that's how you get drinking buddies. <laughs> exactly right <laughs> they show up right away i've taken uh, investors flying and i love it so. and it's fun what a great excuse right you have somebody that mm -hmm. you truly want to reward and you have commonalities you get to know them yeah. and how many people are actually doing that right they take the lot. investor check they wire the money in and out and not often do they take the time to really appreciate and get to know the investor so man what, what an incredible outlook that you have thank you and finally, Neil, what's the best way the best ever listeners can reach out to you? The best way is, frankly, through our website. So we got MAGCP, so that's for magcapitalpartners.com. Or you can just shoot me in that direct. It's easy, Neil, like the Neil Diamond or Neil Armstrong, <laughs> N-E-I-L at MAGCP.com. Awesome, Neil. Thank you again for your time today, man. You are a wealth of knowledge with everything industrial. You've opened up a new world for a lot of people, I believe. So thank you again for your time today. Thank you again for your service and sacrifice. Let's get you back on here when you hit some more milestones or something crazy happens with the industry. <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks for having me, Ash. Awesome. Best ever listeners, thank you so much for joining us. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so... Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.